everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about their challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. I'm doubly delighted to welcome today Felicia Merowitz-Singh, the CEO of Akoni, and Pano Savas, the CTO of Akoni. Akoni is a multi-currency cash deposit management platform that provides specialist white-label portal and API solutions to the wealth sector and small and medium businesses, as well as a marketplace cash solutions to banks and other enterprise clients for their end customers. So Felicia conceived of Oconi when she was an SME director holding 50 million in cash and was frustrated with a very few market options available to manage that. Felicia has significant experience in high growth financial services businesses and startups operating in the UK FCA regulated market and has won numerous awards like the FDM Every Woman of the Year 2019 award and was a finalist in the Treasury Innovator Award by the Treasury Leaders Summit. Panos, as one of the founders, is currently focused on scaling the Akoni business. With over 14 years in banking and fintech, Panos has been leading global product management teams and change management programs for leading financial organizations, including RBS, IG Group, Intelligent Environment, and others. I'm really delighted to welcome both of them to the show today. Thanks, Anita. Great to be here. So I think I'm going to start my interview today by asking you, Felicia, on why you decided to start Akoni and kind of the circumstances that prompted that. Well, I used to be a CFO, a finance director in the London insurance market, in the Lloyd's market. And we managed a lot of cash. We managed cash on behalf of our own business. And we also managed client money, which under the FCA operates under a regime called CAS which is client assets. And you manage that money in a certain way to ensure it's safeguarded and protected. And at the time, we had quite a significant sum for a small mid-sized business, but not enough to qualify for our bank's treasury. And we banked with two of the top four banks in the UK. And we just weren't, you know, it was like getting no service from anyone. Uh, At the time, I actually thought there would be some sort of miniature treasury management solution. So like a mini TMS that would be available and automatically hooked up to all the banks. And of course there wasn't. Went out, asked other CFOs and everyone was like, yeah, that would be a great idea, but there's nothing there. So there's nothing that we can do. And our business spent about five and a half months moving a small amount of money, about 30 million, to two other banks. My finance team had to do all the work. And I thought, this is crazy because, you know, we had a constant flow of cash. So what were we going to do in another month or in another two months? And I thought, well, we can't do this whole exercise again because we had to undertake an assessment of the banks ourselves. There weren't any ratings available. We had to find which products they were. And I thought, well, what can we do in this day and age with data, technology? How can we automate this? I understood what we could do from a regulatory perspective, setting up a panel and a a kind of legal structure. Uh, And then I met Panos and we started the discussion and I'll hand over to him to carry on the story. So where did you meet Panos, by the way? Did you know Panos before or you just met him? Well, not serendipitously. We actually both went to London Business School. Okay. So we met through the alumni network, like completely different years, but that's how we met. And I'm the Finn and Panos is the tech in FinTech. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So Panos, you met Felicia and she had this idea. 
Yeah. So Felicia came, we sort of started talking about this idea and she had a lot of really uh, good insight into the market, sort of the commercial side of things. Um, and it was clear that this business was going to be a technology first business. So it, ne- it needed a different approach. Uh, my background has always been by trader developer. I started off after university working in IT jobs, developer jobs, and sort of progressed through various organizations to the point where I was managing large product or large change teams across multiple regions. And always with an emphasis on financial technology or banking technology, primarily on the retail side. And then uh, later on, uh, when I met Felicia, I was working in investment banking technology, both trading systems and things like that. So there was some complementarity, but where Felicia was coming was from the SME sector, right? From the the small business, small and medium-sized enterprise sector, which was something that was relatively new to me. Uh, But I felt that there was a real opportunity there based on how the information we could find out about the marketplace and the gaps in terms of financial services to, to those businesses. So we decided that we would sort of throw our uh, lot together and, and, and see if we could build something around that premise that technology could better serve uh, SMEs to give them better financial services than they have before. And we very quickly launched the first iteration of our platform before we had any of the regulation in place or, or any of the banking relationships. And, and the vision has always been to build a really slick user interface, uh, really clear customer-centric goals but using data to sort of really personalize that experience. So it's not a one size fit all. Out with the old sort of approach of the banks, which is they build products, financial products around their needs. And the is there to provide a marketplace with products for the customer's needs. Right, right. I think a lot of people have really good ideas, but it's another thing to really start a company. Did you both know that at one point in time you would want to be entrepreneurs and start a company? I knew. <laughs> yeah. I knew, but I waited because I worked with this fantastic entrepreneur and a guy named Errol Grohlman after I finished my articles at PwC. And he was actually one of the original founders of Investec who had left out of, there was a a group of four founders. And I worked at a company called Core Capital and Structured Products. And he said, what do you want to do? We'll back you. (laughs) And I I was like, I I don't know, you know. (laughs) Yeah. And, but they were, they were a company that backed entrepreneurs. So that was their nature. And so I worked in their structured products. He said, okay, well, you know, you decide, take your time. And I had always, I'd always thought about it. And another brilliant entrepreneur, this guy, Rod Redding, in direct marketing of savings products through a company called Alexander Forbes. Um, he, he set it up himself and then Alexander Forbes bought it. And he once said to me, he said, just take your time. He said he only started his first business when he was in his early 50s and he'd worked corporate until then. And he said, when you're in financial services, you don't need to rush anything. He said, you're in a regulated space. You need to understand the way you do things in a proper way. You need to grow things over time. And I had actually asked him once, I said, Rod, you know, would you do something differently? And he said, yeah, you know, I probably would have started my business when I was younger. And I was thinking he was going to say like late twenties, early thirties. And I said, oh, when would you have started? He said, probably when I was 50. <laughs> so, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. So actually, you know, it's really because we're, there's this myth around everyone, you know, works out of their garage when they're 19 years old. Right. And you can start a business at any point in your life. Wow. It must have been really gratifying to have that kind of encouragement. So now that you've started the company, how did you go about proving product market fit? 
We launched very early, basically. We took the approach that we would launch a platform um, even before we could offer a monetized service. So something that had real tangible value to the initial SMEs that would sign up. Um, so right early, early in 2017, we sort of launched a version of the platform that allowed businesses to plan their savings across multiple banking institutions. We gave them a way to track rates across multiple institutions. And so that immediately had some popularity. We got sort of quite a, a number of our clients or clients at that point, uh, users signing up to use the platform from day one with very little marketing, um, mostly word of mouth and sort of organic traffic. Hmm. Uh, and that gives us a great opportunity to figure out what works and what doesn't work because the, the way this is executed is, is, is key. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's not a lot of uh, fat on the bone when it comes to managing cash. Customers need to feel confidence in what the system is trying to do for them and they need to understand the effort that's going to be required of them. And so we that allowed us to sort of build a number of iterations of our platform after that that sort of refined on those points on an ongoing basis to the point where now we try and sign up and do a full digital KYC process, an AML process with us in just a few minutes and be placing funds to gain interest the same day. It was a lot shorter than the sort of few months that Felicia's team took to do that back in the day. Okay. Yeah. So, mm, sorry, can I just add to that on the product market fit? One of the things that we also learned once we launched the paid service, which obviously took much longer because we had to be regulated and get the banks, which, and that's the nature of fintech, is that you've got that long time lag whenever you're working with banks, mm. um, was then we recognized the high cost of customer acquisition. Right. And what we did is we switched our focus. I mean, sometimes people call it a pivot in the fintech world, but for us, it wasn't a pivot because we'd always planned on going white label. So while you get, you know, you get that fit in one area, if your customer acquisition costs are too high or it will take you forever to scale using that particular commercial model, you need to look at what your strategy is, which is what we did. And then we refocused all of our technology, all our proposition work, on a white label solution, which then enables us to scale more rapidly because we're working with multiple financial partners, particularly in the wealth space, um, distributing via banks who are wealth managers as well, platforms, financial advisors, as well as the whole retail market and a number of like SME type white label Mm. partners. So although you know, we started with that product market fit and it's a recommendation I would make to anyone is you've got to constantly be reviewing your cost of customer acquisition in whatever your business model is. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's really solid advice. All right. Well, let me, let me backtrack a little bit to where we are today in terms of financial markets and what are the trends you're seeing in terms of financial services, fintech that maybe you can share with the audience? Yeah, so I think there's a number of key trends. One of them is obviously, which we see in everything, is the personalization. So utilizing data to enable almost a treasury service or a cash treasury service in our case to anyone, whether you're a consumer like the three of us on this call, whether you're an ultra high net worth or a small business or a small charity, whichever way. The only way that that can be done successfully is by using the data. 
And what we're having is every single month, even new sources of data becoming available. Everyone knows about open banking. There's a little bit of chat at the moment about open finance. So we expanding that the pensions dashboard is introducing much more information around retirement. So there's more and more data, but multiple sources of data really contribute to this. You know, the land registry has got APIs. Property prices are now public. So if you have an asset there and you want to look at, is there any leverage that you can yield from that? So there's a whole range of data sources that are really driving this kind of change. And so that's at the core is uh, around that data personalization. And then more broadly for us in particular, there's a, a huge amount of regulation that keeps changing for the benefit of the consumer, uh, obviously open banking is one set of that uh, and a number of the others that I already mentioned, but in the wealth sector in particular, there's, for instance, in the UK drawdowns, which is called pensions freedoms became something, you know, which was leveraged by tens of thousands of people from a few years ago. And that created an issue because now people are sitting with cash because they didn't mm. trust their pension providers so they're holding cash. What are they going to do? How, if you're a wealth platform or an advisor, how should you be advising your clients when historically all the attention has been on the accumulation phase, not the decumulation phase? Mm. So that kind of legislation has got a huge amount of unintended consequences. As a result, now the FCA has brought out something around investment pathways where firms have got to follow one of four pathways to help clients. So they're not sitting out of the market or they know they're making active choices around cash. And our platform provides one of the solutions to investment pathways, particularly um, relating to relating to cash. Um, and then there's a whole range of other regulatory changes in the market that's also pushing that. And <laughs> one of the biggest things we see as a trend in the wealth sector in particular is the intergenerational shift in wealth. Mm. So we are now going through the next decade is one of the, I think the largest intergenerational shifts that the world has ever known. And um, obviously it's coming out of the US, but it also impacts the UK, Europe, Asia. And the next generation has got a completely different view as to how they manage their wealth or their cash. Hmm. Uh, and as a result of that, you need a range of tools, which are API first. So essentially, we are the marketplace within our clients' marketplaces, like the Intel inside. And all the entire experience is digital. So your client never feels they are leaving your home. Hmm. And you have a curated choice of products. So they never feel they're only out being forced to choose one product. And we provide all of that solution within a very complex environment relating to anti-money laundering, know your customer, and a constantly shifting landscape relating to the, the sources of data. I see. Panos, are there any trends you're seeing in addition to what Felicia's mentioned? Uh, no, these are the trends that we've kind of discussed extensively and when that Coney tries to be strategically positioned for. So the personalization, okay. being able to embed into other marketplaces, these are all really key, key facts. Has the pandemic changed anything in terms of what you're seeing from a consumer or business perspective? Yes, for sure. One of the things that we've seen, especially from the SME side, is um, a much more focus on cash management from a risk and governance perspective. It's been less about the return, but they've uh, wanted to diverse, diversify their risks. Um, and that's been a, a, big, a big difference. It's always been important, but that's become a, a much more interesting driver for a number of businesses that, that have come to us 
over the last couple of months. Um, I think that's less prevalent in the commercial space. There's also been a much stronger focus on cash management and, and, and uh, placement of cash overall, and a much stronger interest in deposit guarantees from all parties. Okay. Yeah, well, I think all of this really is very focused on client-centric solutions. So financial services historically is very product-centric focused. So you're a bank or an insurance company. I offer you my products. So all of my platforms, all my systems, all of my marketing is really designed more around my products than about you, the client. Mm. And we think that 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 time has passed, really. And you've got a lot of almost um, commoditization in traditional products in terms Mm. of the set products that um, the balance sheets of insurance companies, of um, banks produce. So really then we're moving towards a client-centric world. And that whole client-centric world lends itself very well to personalization, digital solutions, typical machine learning, AI. You see all of that coming out in providing those solutions. We even, not only in the wealth sector, but even in the retail space, we can see now solutions arising very COVID-focused, which is around resilience. Hmm. So how do I manage risk, build resilience, as opposed to how do I first increase my returns? Because people are concerned about being able to face a crisis in the strongest possible way. And we provide a whole range of cash savings and cash solutions and prompts and tucked away savings accounts um, that can you know, benefit anyone who's looking for that type of solution. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. So it sounds to me like uh, the reason for a lot of innovation in fintech is this whole open banking and open finance movement and regulations that are coming. Has there been any um, studies done that show how open banking has actually helped benefit businesses and consumers? Yeah, I think there've been quite a few studies along this kind of line. It's particularly in the UK. I haven't seen studies on Europe, but I haven't been specifically focused on it. And I think that's one of the reasons that we've got this whole movement towards open finance now. Because well, I think it was earlier this year that open banking adoption, you know, went past one million, hmm. one million customers. Right. And what's happening is really a customer's not aware. <laughs> Well, they're aware it's open banking as in, because that's the user journey that they go through, but you're not selling them open banking. You're selling them a benefit. Like you will get this loan quicker if you give me access to your bank account. You know, it's like when Facebook, you're logging into some weird quiz and it says log in with Facebook, right? Right. You know, it's going to be easier for you. So it's that kind of concept. And the same with things like, which is what we do. We have a, like a fully digital three to five minutes anti-money laundering KYC process, which Mm -hmm. is very attractive to a number of our banks and our wealth partners, because they recognize that this is a major issue. And we do this for individuals, for businesses, charities. You know, we can even do it for like a rep product, like a sip and a sauce, which are retirement Mm -hmm. rep products in the UK. So it's definitely had a significant impact. And we think that really the next few years is going to drive even more change. You know, it's kind of weird because I think I saw, I saw a 
report which said it's 50 years since ATMs were launched <laughs> and then open banking came. It's like only 50 years later. Wow. So <laughs> much. A lot of people, especially in the first year or so after the launch, were very negative about open banking. Right. I had to keep telling people it, it's very clear that this is a very early stage for a financial technology. I mean, how long did it take Visa and MasterCard to establish their pay rails, their payment rails? How long did it take um, so the faster payments initiative to get launched and become successful? Or the account switching services here in the UK, all of these things take time, chip and pin. You know, it's still not rolled out globally in some places. We won't talk about the US. But the, the years, these things take a while to refine. And, you know, uh, open banking has been really co- focused on the consumer side. And it offers a huge amount of value, exactly as Felicia was saying there. Mm-hmm. Use cases are still emerging. And, and interestingly enough, there's a number of developments that are going to make it a, a, a much more usable alternative to traditional banking over the next few years. The limitations at the moment are a bit tricky, particularly with corporates with multiple accounts, mm-hmm. with multiple reorganizations. So they're looking at all sorts of customer journeys um, that will improve that down the line. So I think over the next few years, we're going to see a refinement of what open banking can offer and how it will work. We're talking about things like recurring variable payments to really do drop the cost of bank-to-bank payments that are repeating on a regular basis for clients, future payments, so you can plan cash flow in, inflows and outflows around those but also the whole reauthorization model, which is um, a bit clunky at the moment, but is certainly improving all the time. Hmm. Okay. So how do you balance the innovation that something like open banking offers against the misuse of such innovations for fraud? What is the industry and what are fintech organizations like you doing to give consumers and businesses peace of mind that even though you're using all these new innovations to fast track some of the old processes and systems, that there are checks and balances in place so that we don't have another wire card type of fiasco. Mm. I think wire card was, I won't say too much because I mean, I don't want to be called out, but it seems that there was sort of a willingness to behave badly there. I mean, it's clear that the last few years, the regulator has sought to devolve a range of services with e-money licenses and things of that. I think the regulator after this particularly will start realizing that that needs more oversight, more active oversight. But uh, speaking from a Coney's perspective, and I'm sure Felicia has plenty to add to this, is that one of our key sort of hallmark statements is that we, we believe in transparency and we believe in adding value to the customer. So we do what we say and nothing more. We don't use clients' data for anything other than the stated purposes that we explain to them. They're always in control of their data. We're extremely careful about how we do that and that we offer something of value in return for that sharing of data. And it's always about improving the service to them. So that's our kind of true north in in many ways. I think um, from my perspective is this really all around governance and conduct. And as the FCA loves to say, is that that's very closely linked to culture. So Mm. depending on the underlying culture, and um, that is also going to impact. And we started with a very strong board right from the beginning. And obviously, we spent a lot of time investing in the technology as well as the legal and regulatory proposition and structure. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, setting up what we consider our internal governance. So in addition to a risk committee, we've got 
very strong independent directors like our chairman who's a, an ex-bank CEO and mm-hmm. uh, ex-bank chairman so that mm-hmm. provides value and when you look at what's happened with Wirecard specifically yeah. and at the same time as that happening um, in the market the FCA has been doing a review of payments firms and e-money firms yeah. and uh, it wasn't even driven specifically by Wirecard there were some things relating to COVID some things from a prior thematic review that they'd done that came out mm. and and so this was something they had obviously identified. The market had you know, not responded well because the UK in particular has got more licenses under the payment services directive as either a payments company or an e-money than any other company in Europe by quite a substantial amount. So they now are looking at the prudential requirements. So what kind of capital are you holding? What kind of cash? Um, are you buffering for your the current market and the future? That's obviously the number one requirement of mm-hmm. any regulated firm. Are you still going to be here in six or 12 months? And that's the first thing. And then they are assessing a whole range of controls and practices. And really, you know, I call it all falling under conduct, but um, they need to give very prescriptive advice and guidance about, well, how are you safeguarding these assets? Mm-hmm. How are you doing? It sounds quite granular, but a reconciliation to your banks and a reconciliation to your clients. What do you do about risk management? How do you communicate to all of your clients? So all of that, you know, it's quite hard if you're not in financial services to actually understand why a regulator would want that because it seems quite inefficient in some cases. But if a client is, say, going to come to you with a complaint, then you need to see literally that every point has got an audit trail hmm. and every point can be reviewed back and every point you've had some sort of assessment relating to that conduct. And I think it's much harder when firms are undergoing some sort of rapid growth and how, you know funding all different customer acquisition as well as uh, regulatory resources and so on. Hmm. So, yeah, it's a tough issue, but I think that they're going to start to clamp down. Uh, my assessment is I assume we should see some consolidation in the market, hmm. partly because of COVID um, and partly because as a result of, you know, market sensibilities and vulnerabilities, you know, people just don't want to necessarily be doing this anymore because yeah. it can be quite stressful. That's really interesting. Looks like culture and putting these strict checks and balances has been very much part of Oconee's DNA from the beginning. You talked a little bit about consolidation and I wanted to pick up that thread for a second. How do you see open banking evolve in Europe and what would you like to see happen in terms of regulations? From my side, I think it's just spreading to all other parts of financial services essentially. So we're already seeing the pensions dashboard in the UK. I'm assuming that other countries in Europe are either following that or will be following that. I foresee that more of insurance will become open. Hmm. So because actually investments is originally the insurance sector. And if that part of the sector starts opening up, then there's nothing wrong with the short-term insurance started opening up. Anything that holds asset values that can be utilized um, will also start opening up. So really a massive mushrooming of all types of data um, that is going to increasingly become available. Obviously, we know accounting data is already available. Mm-hmm. Um, in the world of tax, uh, HMRC already has got making tax digital for small businesses. And I think that whole trend will also move towards individuals. There's no actual reason why very small businesses need accounts. 
uh, as far as I'm concerned, the, mm -hmm. and I am originally an accountant. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't practice, but I, I, so you would think I would believe in the whole concept of accounts. But in fact, if you're a small business, why, what do you need an accounts for? If you, as long as you can meet your tax obligations, mm. which you can through a cash accounting type of system, if you're not sitting with, you know, major liabilities and so on, and um, then there's no, there's no necessity for it. Or you can have pro forma accounts to, you know, when a bank needs something, if you're looking for a loan. So there's a really a massive shift that's happening. And I think it's beyond open, open banking, beyond open finance. It's really around open data in every sense. Mm. that helps the consumer or um, small businesses make their lives easier in everything. Mm. Interesting. And how does Europe compare to, let's say, the US or any other part of the world? Well, I think because of open banking, Europe has led the way. Mm -hmm. But it's not only open banking, even our payments payment systems, the payment schemes that operate in the UK and across Europe are more, far more sophisticated than what have been in the US until recently. Hmm. So you have foster payments, contactless being introduced long before they're on the US. Obviously, the US will catch up. There's no question around that. So it's not it's not a matter of um, their innovation being better or worse. It's just mm -hmm. that there's a different set of regulations that are driving it. So, you know, even here, another trend in regulation is the Bank of England, which has been consulting on something called atomic settlement, which means that when you make a payment for an asset, the asset ownership transfers. So what that means is when you make a payment for your house, <laughs> the deed ownership transfers at the land registry. That doesn't happen now. It can be weeks, sometimes months before mm -hmm. that deed changes official legal ownership. Mm -hmm. So why doesn't it happen? And then that, uh, it's the same thing for multiple other types of assets. And, what, it's, and it's a very strange thing because when you think about it, you're like, oh yeah, why doesn't it happen? <laughs> yeah. And that's because we have a complex financial system with a complex set of legal agreements sitting behind it. Mm -hmm. And all of that complexity is really distilled into data. And uh, I think across the world, that's where we'll slowly start seeing, you know, as each market becomes impacted because they're falling behind because they're not offering, then they do their own open banking review. How can they accommodate this? Or, you know, how can they roll it out over time? Uh, in some cases, maybe it's going to benefit small uh, businesses and individuals before it's going to benefit other businesses, which become more complex. Mm -hmm. But we even seeing at the treasury level, like mm -hmm. global corporates who operate in multiple jurisdictions are getting close to what we call near real-time or real-time views of their cash flow, mm -hmm. which is an incredible situation to be in. I mean, it's just, you can't believe as a treasurer that that situation could ever happen. You know, that you could have 20 countries and you could have a real-time or near real-time view of their cash flow positions and what your short-term cash projection is going to be and whether you have any immediate borrowing or immediate investment requirements and then map automatically to the relevant products using, you know, if you're sitting, you have this marketplace that's curated, white labeled API first, sitting behind an Oracle enterprise platform or a SAP enterprise platform. Mm -hmm. So it's really all the way across all types of markets that this is going to impact, I think. Yes, it, it sounds like it. And how are the big banks, the incumbents, how do they relate and how is that relationship 
changed over time. For the ecosystem to work well, all these different players, the middleware, the incumbents, the fintech players, they all need to work together. And obviously, innovations like open banking make it happen from a technical point of view. But what about um, culturally and from a mindset perspective, how are the different players working together and collaborating, at least in the UK? Certainly something we've seen is the huge digital enablement gap under COVID. It's clear that larger financial institutions, not just banks, haven't embraced digital in the way that they should have in the past. And I think what they've seen now, there's a much stronger driver for them to do that because obviously it impacted their business continuity over recent months. Mm. So open banking, as you rightly say, puts a framework in place for the technical collaboration, but uh, it, needs a, it needs a bigger shift towards embracing that sort of distributed service model. I think the idea is dying that one bank can provide all services or one provider can provide all services to every segment and more and more collaboration will come into the fold. And that's increasingly being driven as well by the need for identity management across various platforms. Mm. That's, that's always been the thing that slowed it down is, is the trust and identity um, mm-hmm. issues with collaboration across particularly regulated services, across uh, trying to collaborate across in different uh, entities. Mm. Um, so I think that's going to be a big trend over the next few years is both increasingly leveraging fintechs for uh, digital agility and digital enablement with the big incumbents, but also the rise of better ways of managing identity and trust across uh, organizational boundaries. Interesting. Okay. Anything else you want to add to that, Felicia? Yeah, just one thing on the, I guess, the culture of the banks. At the beginning, I think there was a lot more talk around working with and partnering with fintechs. Mm -hmm. And now as technology becomes more sophisticated and the banks become more comfortable with the testing, I think they are really seeing that they have to work with fintechs because they just can't produce this kind of technology as rapidly as an agile and small fintech can, which has got an innovation, you know, central to its whole core, to its being. And we see that in respect of very large wealth managers or software platforms that service that market, as well as the banks. It's a slow process. I think if you're selling anything on an enterprise basis mm-hmm. as a startup, you have to have a lot of cash to burn. <laughs> because of the length of time that it takes. And you have to be able to work out how you can develop relationships across one of these organizations or many of these organizations, uh, because that will be critical. You've you've almost got multiple buyers within one company. Like some of these banks are so big, Mm. literally one banking partner, I introduced two people from different divisions in the bank. They didn't know each other. (laughs) I'm sure there's many startups with stories like that. Right, right. So actually, that was where I'd like to start focusing the conversation more towards your go-to-market, whether it's today with the white label solution or previously where you were going direct to SME market. How did you go about building relationships with key banking players? I think the first thing is, obviously, we had to develop our panel of banks. And that in itself was a long and time-consuming process with multiple dependencies. So banks would start their due diligence of us, then await, for instance, proof that another bank would come on board or proof that our FCA regulation had come in or proof that we capitalized the company adequately. You know, there were every single point, there was a dependency at the beginning. Mm -hmm. So there's there's a certain point where you 
probably can't hurry it up mm. <laughs> because you, you have to go through a compliance process. You have to follow a due diligence or regulatory process. But obviously, you know, I suppose the only thing to have done would be have thrown more resource at it as early as possible in order to more rapidly develop that panel of banks who are essentially our partners. You know, we provide their products out to the market. Mm-hmm. and But then that would have taken resource away from the technology. So, you know, you've always got that juggle. And then in terms of selling to the bank, which is selling to a bank or a wealth manager or a platform or even a retail outlet, it's a similar process in terms of understanding what is each person's motivation and what's the organizational motivation and where they are? Or is there a sign-off? Is there a senior person who's going to sign it off? Is there a budget process? Is it, are they just looking what's going on in the market? Mm-hmm. And you often don't uncover all that information because you can't just you know have a chat and someone tells you everything. Right. Uh, and sometimes there's changes in the bank's team or the wealth management team and that puts you back or there's shifts in their own priorities or, or like COVID hits, you know, as an example, and then certain things might ground to a halt and then they start again. So there's so many variables. You have to be able to manage it on an enterprise basis and do as much of that with a full enterprise type of team on our side of the business. Right, right. Okay. So if you look back, both of you, at your early years to where you are today, what would be mistakes you could have avoided or what would you advise yourselves, your younger selves? The early years of a Kony or in the early years of our careers? Kony. As you were building the company, Panos, what would you have done differently if you had to do it again? And same for you, Felicia. It's an interesting one. Uh, probably a lot. Uh, certainly, I would have just... Um, my expectations. Things take longer than you think when you enter into the first phase of the, the startup. You believe you're going to conquer the world by the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Especially when you're working with banks and big financial institutions, things will take longer than you expect and, and then double that again. So that's probably one thing. But um, interesting enough, I think we started according on a pretty good principle. We looked at a need in the market and identified that. And that hasn't really changed. So I think you need to do your validation early on uh, in terms of the market viability of your idea. But then what we did do really well is adapt our distribution and routes to markets as we learn more about the dynamics of the industry. So all the things that Felicia was talking about before are really important. And maybe we could have reacted faster, I'm not sure, but actually I think we did a pretty good job in that respect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I think there's one thing I would have done completely differently, and that would have been I had a full and proper understanding of the fundraising process and what investors look at and when they look at that. Because what I have observed is from people who have been investors, so they've worked at an investment bank or at some sort of venture capital or CVC, they understand what you need to be saying to investors to raise money and when you need to be saying it Mm. and what that in turn then means for your business plan and your traction metrics. And I would certainly say that I was totally new and naive in that respect and had no idea that there was a type of expectations relating to the venture capital market as to how you communicate, who the type of people that they want to see, the type of plan they want to see, the type of team they want to see. There's a lot um, there that if you've been in the market, as an investor, you know, Mm. and you can almost create 
your timing, your plan about when you approach the investment market according to that, because that in turn will impact your business traction. Because if you don't have funding when you need the funding, then you're not going to be able to deliver. I mean, there's so many variables in fundraising. So I'm, I'm not saying that would, would change something radically, but I've just seen the difference in people who are much more experienced in that space mm-hmm. compared to certainly ourselves. And I haven't yet found someone who's mapped that out. Hmm. But it's one of the things which I would really love to do is to talk to people who've been in those roles and then actually almost map it out as a guide for Hmm. future entrepreneurs. Yeah, what you just pointed out, Felicia, I think is something a lot of first-time entrepreneurs probably struggle with. And I would think that there were resources, forums, networks, hubs that help educate first-time entrepreneurs on this. Yeah, and I've looked at loads. Like I work with this group, this Hive Founders Group, which is a group of early-stage female founders. And so we've looked at loads of tools that could help others, help ourselves, and never seen anything that fits the description of what I've said here. Wow, interesting. Well, I think that's, that's an opportunity for someone to develop. Okay, so the other thing that you touched on, Felicia, and I've been dying to get to it is... As a female founder and CEO in fintech, what has the experience been like? Well, you know, it's very hard to actually say what's it like me for me as a female entrepreneur versus anyone else. Because my assumption is for anyone, founding a business is a hard road. It's really tough. Both Panos and I, we'd have the same experience of that. My experience as a female founder is you just, you never know when there are total unconscious biases in the market. Because if you look at all the statistics, very little venture funding goes to female-founded businesses. There's a lot of unconscious biases in terms of questions that are asked. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of um, venture capital funders who retain what we call optionality, like come back when X and you go back when X and then they go, no, come back when Y, go back when Y. And it's kind of like, you know, Gary's on forever. Um, So you you don't really know but that was one of the reasons that actually myself and Andrea, another friend who's a friend of Panos's as well, started the High Founders was because of the fact that you sometimes get these weird comments or situations and you want to be able to talk about it with another female founder who maybe has got experience in it. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's very hard to know, but for something that for me has got such a complex array of variables input, you know, is it due to children and girls not following STEM paths? Is it due to early professional education? Is it due to early experience in uh, your first professional role? There's, you know, multiple key touch points. And I personally don't believe there's been enough research to determine what all of this is. Is it a societal bias? Is it all of these factors? Mm -hmm. And something that complex needs to me systemic intervention, which tends to come via government or via something that regulation pushes out, like, you know, should all the, you know, sovereign wealth funds have a minimum requirement, which is gender-based or minorities-based? Yeah, I don't know where the beginning and end of something that like that would be. All I'm just saying is that a complex problem like this, I feel, needs a complex solution. It's not just a matter of having a couple of groups. So, you know, our group helps with mentorship, and I've had a number of... Um, yep supporters and mentors, both male and female. And 
there's other groups that do the same thing for female founders. So we're a connector group. So we leverage that share knowledge. So all of that helps, but I don't think that that is the only solution. You can't have like a couple of hundred female founders doing one thing and thinking that's actually going to change society. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It is a very complex problem that probably needs a lot of different constituents coming together. But I'm convinced that we could do it. My daughter's not going to grow up in the same world. (laughs) Yeah, that's the spirit, Felicia. I was pretty skeptical about not having faced that sort of either conscious or unconscious biases, you know, not, not being a female founder. Yeah. And I was, I was reasonably skeptical about whether it's really there. I didn't believe right. that was happening on a daily basis necessarily. And actually, I see it every day now, now that I know what to look for. Hmm. And if, anyone, if anyone's not sure yeah, that, that bias exists, if you're, especially if the male audience out there, you know, you need to think about this seriously because it, it really does. And uh, the solutions may come from top down. That's true. But that doesn't absolve personal responsibility. I've been in many meetings where Felicia and I have been sitting opposite someone Mm-hmm. whether it's for an investment pitch or a commercial proposition, and 90, 95% of the questions are directed at me, mm-hmm. even when they're clearly questions that would be better to be directed to the CEO of the business rather than the mm-hmm. CTO. I would just say as a public service announcement, that's just not a good look. That's really insightful, Panos, and, and having you share that is um, really helpful. Thank you for that. Look, we, we're almost nearing end of time. I do want to ask... What is your future goals or ambitions for Akoni and personally for yourself, each of you, as you continue on this uh, wonderful journey you've started? Well, for Akoni to become a dominant cash platform globally, uh, we're we're already in discussions in two other regions in the world because we offer our platform on an enterprise basis as well. And we see that there's increasing appetite in the market. You know, we haven't even been selling that. We've been approached. <laughs> so it's come the other way. Wow. Uh, so that for me is, you know, the most important thing. Like we have leading technology uh, as Panos can attest to, and there's no question that it's just about the delivery to the market. And then I think for me personally, I would love to spend more time doing adventure outdoor sports with my kid. <laughs> 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 I want to go river rafting in Peru. <laughs> I would say, at least in that sense, we're not that different. You know, our, our, our first ambition here is for uh, the business and, and how we do that. But yes, um, as Felicia said before, the entrepreneurial journey is, is pretty hardcore. And as a Coney scales, I hope to find the bandwidth to do much more quality time with family. We've both become acutely aware of that as a deficiency as our kids are growing. We've, got, we've both got young families, young kids. Yeah, well, having the founders say that and believe that they have this ambition for the company, but also bring up the family to me is a very sustainable strategy because you can't do just one for the long term. So I think that's a wonderful um, goal to have for, for yourself and for Akoni. So we're out of time. I usually have this rapid round where I ask you guys questions about books you like to read or your favorite cities in Europe. We have maybe one minute. So maybe I can have Felicia, you recommend a book that's made an impact on you that you've remembered. It could be fiction or business or both and, and your favorite city in Europe. And then Panos, if you could do the same, that would be great. Okay, so for me, my favorite book is not a startup book. I know that's what everyone looks for, but it's by Anne Rand. It's called The Fountainhead. It's a oh, very yeah, crazy it. book. You shouldn't read it when you're a teenager, basically, <laughs> because I think it impacts your head. <laughs> um, and so true. 
Yeah, it's very capitalist, hardcore capitalist. And I'm not necessarily saying I've subscribed to everything in the book because I think a lot of her methodologies and theories have been disproven as time has passed. But I found it very powerful in terms of the concept of intellect and the concept of perseverance and work. And it's impacted me, you know, throughout my life. That and 1984 probably have really influenced the way I think in almost everything. And and I still love, I love both those books. Uh, yeah. I, I value the authors and their mindsets. And then my favorite city in Europe. Wow. I like cities, but I love the outdoors. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Panos? <laughs> Books would be hard to choose one, if I'm honest. Well, sort of nonfiction, Zen and the uh, Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Mm. It's a phenomenal book I read when I was a teenager. And it, and, and on the fictional side, um, 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I mean, yeah. both those books taught, taught the, the teenage panels to, that the world is really what you make of it. Yeah. Uh, uh, in terms of cities in Europe, I'm going to have to say Athens every day. Mm-hmm. Of course, of course. Not Cyprus, not Cyprus. Well, no, Athens, Athens is home for me, not Cyprus. Cyprus is, yeah. is you know, something Go- else. Those are wonderful book recommendations. And, and I have to say, Felicia, I've read all, and Panos, I've yes. read all of those books. And one of the other things I like about Anne Rand, which I read yes. as a teenager, was the powerful women that it has. Yeah. The women are very strong characters. Yeah. They're not, not staying home. They're not a side dish, <laughs> which I love. But I never right. thought about that, but you're so right. <laughs> yeah. And then you read it again later on. I read it as a teenager and completely messed up my thinking. And then you read it up later on and it, it has a more balanced view <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay, excellent. Well, thank you so much, Felicia and Panos, for being on my show. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with both of you. I think Akoni is doing something very useful for um, the business world today. And um, I hope many people check out your, your company and your product. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for being on the show. And thanks, thanks for having us, Anita. Really great to chat. Indeed. Thank you so much for having us. It was a real fun podcast. Yeah.